right, welcome to week two of our series called Outlasters, where we are learning to to leave a legacy that lasts beyond us, to leave behind uh, our values and, and our beliefs that they would actually last even beyond our lifetime. And today in part two, we're going to talk about leaving a financial legacy. Um, I want to tell you just a little bit about my story before we really get in too much this morning when it comes to finances. So if you weren't here last week, let me just expound on the series for just a little bit. Um, the, the idea that, that we kicked our series off with is, is that we want to wrestle with the uncomfortable question of what happens when we're gone. All of us have an expiration date. All of us, if we're average Americans, the average American right now in America dies. One out of one, it happens. At some point in time, life comes to an end. So assuming we are going to be like everybody else, uh, assuming Jesus does not rapture us in our lifetime, which even if he does, there will be things left behind. What, what are we leaving behind us? Are we leaving a legacy? Are we leaving something in the next generation? So whether we have kids uh, or, or whether we have nieces or nephews or, or kids in Kid City or the 662 that we're reaching out to and ministering to, we believe that all of us have a responsibility to be leaders in creating something for the next generation to carry with them. So today we're going to talk about this idea of leaving a financial legacy. So th- to start out with, I want to tell you about uh, 28-year-old Troy. Uh, I got married when I was 28 years old, and uh, I walked into my marriage uh, with $8,500 in credit card debt. Uh, I was maxed out on my credit cards, 28, 29% interest rate, uh, unfortunately far too common of a story. My wife had $7,000 of automobile debt, uh, but her debt was a lot better than mine. One, because she had a car to show for it, whereas my debt was basically food and clothes that were long gone and were useless to me at that point in time. Uh, She actually had a car, but even better than that, she owed the $7,000 to her dad, who was not charging us interest. So her debt was, was significantly better, but between the two of us, we had over $15,000 in consumer debt. And it was so bad uh, that on our honeymoon, this is our honeymoon. Somebody else paid for our honeymoon, by the way, or else we probably wouldn't have had one. Uh, but on our honeymoon, we took a cruise out of Miami, and we got back to Miami. We were going to spend a couple days there. I went to the bank to get some cash, and I was already under. I was already negative in my checking account. This is how I started my marriage. It's a miracle that I'm still married today. Um, I was in bad, bad financial shape. Uh, Proverbs 22.7 says, the borrower is slave to the lender. I was a slave. I was in chains financially at this point in time. And of course, it didn't start out there, just like probably most people's story. It started simple. I was 18 years old when I got my first credit card. My parents co-signed for me to have Capital One. What's in your wallet, right? And uh, it started out good. I had a $300 credit limit. And I paid it faithfully every month, got it taken care of, no big deal. And then over the course of a year or two years, something magical happened. My credit limit went up. And instead of a $300 credit limit, I had a $3,000 credit limit. And man, I couldn't wait to find out what all I could do with that money. Uh, And so over a couple years, I maxed out my first credit card. But there was good news. Other people wanted to give me credit, too. So I went and got two more credit cards uh, and began running them up as well. And so over a 10-year period from the time I was 18 to the time I was 28, I had completely maxed this out. I had little breathing room whatsoever, and I started marriage in a very, very 
bad place. In fact, it was so bad, we got back from our honeymoon, and I slept on a futon when I was a bachelor and realized that that probably wasn't going to work for my wife. Uh, So we decided to go buy a bed, and we went to a furniture store, and we tried to put it on credit, and for the first time in my life, I was denied credit. And that's when I realized things were bad. That's when I realized I was in trouble. So I decided, well, I can at least do some balance transfer. Some of you guys have tried this. You transfer your balance and you get 0% interest for a year, for 12 months, 16 months, whatever, and that'll help give you time to catch up. Well, my credit was so bad, they wouldn't even do, give me a balance transfer. Uh, and it's like, congratulations, baby, you picked a winner. Uh, welcome to my financial life. And so what happened is I had stolen from my future for a decade. And finally, my future came. And what turned out is that I hadn't just stolen from my future. I had stolen from my wife's future as well. Uh, And now she had unwillingly and through no fault of her own become a part of this massive problem. And so I remember to to the day uh, exactly where I was. I was actually sitting right there. Pastor Ricky Grant, who is the pastor before me here at City Church, uh, delivered a message on finances. And he didn't talk about giving, which I had the giving part down. Uh, he, he talked about stewardship. He talked about handling our money wisely. And he gave some principles from Dave Ramsey. How many of you guys know Dave Ramsey? Most of you, quite a few of you. Dave Ramsey is kind of the, the world's financial guru. He's got you know nationwide TV show and radio show and all the best-selling books. Well, Pastor Ricky was a, a disciple, a student of Dave Ramsey's philosophies, and so he shared some of them, and I don't have time to get into all of them. There's a great system he has called the envelope system, which I highly recommend. My wife and I actually did that. Uh, there's another principle he has where he talks about uh, you give 10%, you save 10%, and you live off of 80%. I think it's, a, it's brilliant. I think it's very wise. Not going to have time to get into those, but he, one of the principles he talked about that Pastor Ricky talked about uh, years ago, the first year of my marriage, that, that changed our life is he talked about what he calls the debt snowball, the debt snowball. And so I want to just share this with you very quickly. If you are in a place like I was, you you are drowning in debt. You are looking and and seeing no way out. Things just get worse. They never get better. Um, I I want to encourage you to, to take this step, and I think it will help you a ton. So what Dave teaches, what Pastor Ricky taught, is you need to find $200 that you Somewhere in your budget, you need to come up with 200 bucks. So in other words, you need to discontinue stuff. You need to cancel something. You need to cut out eating out. You need to change your insurance, whatever it might be. But come up with $200. So for us, how we came up with $200 is we canceled cable. Uh, we spoke with an insurance broker. We got our car insurance brought down and our homeowner's insurance brought down for our monthly payment. Um, and, and we did a couple other things, and we found $200. He says, now take that $200 that you've you've now got, and apply it to the, the smallest debt that you have, the smallest bill. Oh, I forgot to tell you the best part of my, my debt. I can't believe I forgot this. I had $6,000 in medical bills and collections because I broke my nose back in 2006 playing basketball at the 662, and I had insurance, but I didn't file it with my insurance because I was an idiot, uh, and eventually they decided that they wanted their money, and so I got collections calls, which those are really fun. Uh, don't ever get in that position. Um, so we decided we had all these bills stacked up. So, so we were going to start attacking the, the smallest one first. Take these $200. We had a bill for uh, the anesthesiologist on my, my broken nose. And I think I owed like 500 bucks uh, to the anesthesiologist. We were paying like 30 bucks a month. So we took that 200 We added it over there. So within three months, that's gone. Now we got $235. Roll that over to the next smallest debt. Pay that off. When that's done, roll it over to the next, et cetera. Um, and, and through the grace of God and through some incredible blessings of God and, and through 
us stepping up and being disciplined, we paid that, I guess it was over $20,000 between medical, credit card, and, and vehicle debt. We got all that paid off in less than a year, uh, which is supernatural, blows my mind. I don't even know how it happened. I know part of it was her dad wrote off the car and told us it was a gift. So that was over $6,000 of it right there, which that was awesome. But the rest was us busting it, us working, us taking our tax return and applying it to our debt. Like every free dollar that we got, we were determined to get out of debt. Now, I know some of you are probably mathematically minded, and you're like, okay, the debt snowball doesn't work because you need to pay on your highest interest rate. That's where that money needs to go, not on the, the lowest payment. And if you're that person, I was you. Because I sat across from Ricky Grant at Starbucks about nine years ago when he first tried to teach me these principles, and I said, that's stupid. I should pay it on the highest interest rate. And he said, look, it's not just a math equation. It's an emotional problem. He said, if it was just about math, you wouldn't be in debt. Uh, but it's about your emotions, it's about the way that you're wired, and he said, you need a win, you need to see that you're making progress, that something's getting somewhere, and I looked at him, and I said, this is dumb, and I didn't do it, and three years later, I said, okay, I'm humbled, I'm in worse shape than I was before, I'm married, my, my, my actions affect somebody else and not just myself, and then I tried it, and it works, so if you're that math person, I, I get your math side of it, but understand there's more to this than just math. So if you're in that place, understand there is hope. There is freedom. I believe that God does not create us for bondage. He wants us to be free. We are not supposed to be slaves. The borrower is slave to the lender, but we are not supposed to be slaves. So, so embrace that. Find the discipline to start saying no. Find that 200 bucks in your budget and go to work, uh, and you can get out of debt. I can't promise you it'll happen in a year like it did for us. I still can't believe it happened that quickly for us, um, but I do believe very strongly you can get to that place. Uh, but I actually heard Dave uh, speak at a conference a couple years ago called the Catalyst Conference in Dallas, and he spoke with his daughter, Rachel. And at that point in time, they had just written a book together. Uh, his daughter's name is Rachel Cruz. She's married now. Uh, but it's called Smart Money, Smart Kids. And they had just written this book. I highly, highly recommend the book. Uh, and they came to this conference, and, and they shared three principles for how to leave a lasting financial legacy with your kids, how, how to teach your kids to handle money well, how to teach your kids to, to, to be in a position where they're not going to go into massive credit card debt. In fact, I'll tell you this, first service, uh, we, we prayed, we said, you know, raise your hand if you need prayer because you're in debt right now and, and you're believing God to help you get out of this. Um, 80% of the people who raised their hands in first service were 20-somethings. It is young people who are starting out just like I did, 28 years old, $15,000 debt. Uh, pe people are at that place frequently in our culture. So how can we help our kids to not make that mistake? How can we help our kids to, to not end up there? How can we help the next generation, whether we have kids or not? But how can we pass on a legacy for the next generation coming up behind us uh, th that is going to be healthy? Well, here's three things that they teach. And today, I didn't try to tweak these. I didn't try to come up with my own. I am not a financial guru. Dave Ramsey is the financial guru. So this is straight plagiarism. These are straight up his points that he taught at Catalyst three, two years ago. Um, I'm just going to give you his stuff because I think it is so, so good. And I truly believe if you apply it, if we apply it, it is going to make a great difference. So the first thing that we're going to teach our kids, if we're going to leave a lasting financial legacy, number one is God owns it all. God owns it all. Proverbs 24.1, excuse me, Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's all his. It's all his. Sometimes we, we teach this principle that, hey, uh, God gives us 100% and he only wants 10% back from us. And, and that, yes, it's true. 
Uh, but but the, the bigger point is it's all still his. He's giving me the 90% to steward well. See, I had the giving part down eight years ago, six years ago. I, I was good at that side. I didn't have the stewardship down. The 10% was fine. It was the 90 that I was terrible with. But when we realize that God owns it all, it changes the way we look at things. We live in a very kid-centric culture right now. And look, I love my kids. If you know me, you know, I'm probably going to be talking about my son at some point in time or my daughter at some point in time. They're fun. They're awesome. I get how people can, can get to the place where their life revolves around their kids. But we do our kids a disservice if we give them the impression that the world revolves around them. Uh, they need to know that they are not the center of the universe. And this is one great way that we can begin to teach them that right off the top. God owns it all. In other words, it's not all yours. It's not all about you. It's not all about what they want or they desire. It's all God's. Because here's what happens. When we realize that, that God owns it all, we handle money better. When I realize that it's his and not just mine, I'm going to steward it well. When, when I realize that, that he's trusted it to me, just like the parable of the talents, right? The, the master pulls his three servants together. He says, I'm going to give you five talents, and I'm going to give you two talents, and I'm going to give you two, one talent, and I'm going away on a long journey, but eventually I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to ask you for an account for what did you do with my money. Uh, and he shows up, and, and, and they give an account, and he blesses them, the ones who used it well, and he takes from the one who didn't use it well. Well, all of us have started at different points, right? Like one person had five talents. Somebody grew up here. You had great parents. Your parents were college educated. They had a family business. You were financially blessed from an early age. You started out ahead. And because of that, man, you were able to go to college. You don't have student loan debt. You're in a great place. Some of us, maybe our parents had two talents. They weren't the best, but man, we were, we were in pretty good shape. Some of us grew up the, the child of the one with one talent. And you were scraping and scrapping for Kool-Aid and Top Ramen, right? Like you didn't have much growing up, and, and, you, and you always had this kind of lack mentality. I got to get as much as I can. But regardless of where we're at on that spectrum, regardless whether we have the most or the least, the truth of it is we don't have any of it. It's his, not ours. And when we begin to look at it that way, when we begin to receive that and understand that, it changes what we do with it. It changes the way we were responsible with it. For me, what, what was the big change for me financially? When did I finally get serious about getting my finances in order? When I got married. Why? Because now it was somebody else's money. It was somebody else's problem and not just mine. When it was just my problem, I could procrastinate it. I didn't have to worry about it. But when somebody else came into the equation, man, I need to get this fixed because it's not fair for me to do this to her. But, but what if from the beginning I had had the mentality that it's not mine anyway? What if from the beginning I realized that my parents had put that down into me that, None of it's yours. You're stewarding it. You're, you're holding it for someone else. I think I would have started out in a lot better place. So number one, we're going to teach our kids. We're going to teach the next generation. We're going to model in our own life that God owns it all. The second thing we need to pass down to them is the value of hard work. The value of hard work or even just the value of work. Proverbs 13, 4 says, The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. What is diligence? It's work. It's work, right? Work is a four-letter word. For most of us, work is a dirty word, right? But, but work is a good thing, and we got to teach and model and embrace the fact that there's value to hard work. So, so teach your kids that money comes from work. Money doesn't come from mom's purse. Mommy, money doesn't come from dad's wallet. Money doesn't come from throwing a temper tantrum in the cereal aisle at Kroger. Money comes from work. 
right? Uh, last week I said, hey, I don't have a problem if you give your kids allowance. Well, I went back and I listened to Dave and Rachel's teaching again this past week, and I had totally forgotten this, but, but Rachel, his daughter, she says, we didn't get allowance growing up. She said, we got commission. In other words, we had a list of things we could do, and if we did those things, we got paid, and if we didn't do those things, we didn't get anything. Now, I'm not telling you not to give your kids allowance, but I think that's a pretty cool concept, because very early on, they learned money comes from work. It's not just there. It doesn't just appear. I'm not just entitled to some. I receive money when I work, and it, it takes the, the dirty word aspect out of it. Uh, when your kids begin to make money, uh, now, okay, obviously, let me, let me back up here. Your four-year-old, like the, it's going to be age-appropriate. The responsibilities for your four-year-old to make money are going to be different than your 14-year-old. Your four-year-old probably works harder than your 14-year-old, but we're going to work on that too, right? Uh, but So obviously, they're not going to do a lot when they're young, but you're teaching them very early on that there's a benefit that comes from work and, and from hard work. So when your kids make money, there's a couple things that they can do with it, a couple things we have to teach them. Uh, we're going to teach them to give, obviously. We're going to teach them to be generous. Uh, we're going to teach them to save. Uh, so many people don't learn the value of saving. Uh, one of the things the Ramseys did that I thought was super cool, they talked about is, not, not every family's in this position, but if you are, I think it's a great thing to do. They told their kids very early age, when you turn 16 and you want a car, however much money you have saved up, we will match it. So if you have $1,000 for a car, we'll buy you a $2,000 car. If you have $4,000 for a car, we'll buy you an $8,000 car. However much you've saved up, we'll match it. So it was teaching them very early on, you need to start saving. You need to start putting some money away. Don't just spend everything that you have. Proverbs 21.10 says, In the house of the wife there are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours everything he has. Guys, that's America. We are, we are the foolish man that devours everything he has. Do you know the, the current statistics for our country? Set aside our national debt, like our government debt. We won't even get into that because that's just beyond reason. But, but if you look at our just consumer debt, currently in America, we have $733 billion of credit card debt. That's just American individuals. That's not businesses. That's not government. $733 billion in credit card debt. Works out to a little over $15,000 of credit card debt per person who has credit card debt. Uh, currently in America, we have over a trillion dollars in vehicle debt. Now, I have nothing against people who have a nice car, but we don't have a trillion dollars worth of vehicles in America. Like the, the debt is just this massive mountain on top of people. Why? Because we devour everything we have. Because we haven't learned to save. We haven't learned to set aside. We haven't learned to say no so that we can in the long run prosper. So I love the, the Ramsey's plan. They call it the 401 Dave plan. Uh, it's the 401, instead of 401k, it's their 401 Dave, and that's, he'll match it for their car. And so they learn very early to save. Teach your kids to save. It doesn't have to be for a car. You may not be able to match anything, uh, but, but teach them the value of saving. Teach them the value of giving, and teach them when they spend that the dollar is finite. In other words, when you buy something, now the money is gone. Uh, that's such an important principle for us to, to get into the lives of our kids, to get into the next generation, is that money is finite. The last thing that we need to teach the next generation, the last thing that, that kids growing up need to hear, that I needed to hear, that I think will change so many things is this. Number three, contentment is the antidote. Contentment is the antidote. You see, we live in a materialistic culture. We live in a culture that is racing to get the nicest and the best and the biggest 
and the greatest and the latest and the newest. We have zero contentment in our culture. Contentment is not a part of our culture. Uh, and again, I believe that contentment is the antidote to this materialism. We are not against having nice things. We're against nice things having us. Please don't hear that, man, you can't have a nice car or a nice house or nice clothes. Man, if you have those things, that's great. But let's make sure that they don't have us. First Timothy 6.6 6 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. When you can teach contentment to your child, you've given them the antidote to the culture. We've got to give them contentment. We've got to expose them to it. It's giving them like a vaccination against the materialism in our culture. We've got to expose them to it. Content people don't always have the best of everything, but they make the best of everything. Zig Ziglar, famous motivational speaker, tells this story that I really like. He said that there was a, a study being done, uh, and, and they brought in two boys. They brought in an optimistic boy and a pessimistic boy, and they put them both in, in two separate rooms, but the rooms were identically the same. And so they put the boys in the room, and the kids get in the room, and the room is full of manure everywhere. It's just you don't know what manure is, like cow poop, right? We'll just go ahead and say it. So it's, it's all over the room. It's covered. Uh, and so they put the boys in. They leave them in there for an hour. And after an hour, they come in to check on the boys. And so they go to the pessimistic boy first, and, and they open the door. Uh, and the pessimistic boy is in the corner crying, which is probably where most of us would be, right? Why would you do this to me? This is terrible. This is gross, and I'm going to get sick, and this is awful. And he's boohooing off in the corner. Then they come, and they check on the optimistic boy. And they open the door, and the optimistic boy is running around the room, and he's throwing manure everywhere, and he's got a big old smile on his face. Woohoo! Yippee! And they're like, why are you so excited? And he said, man, all this manure in here, there's got to be a pony around here somewhere. Right? The, the, the attitude was different. The circumstances were the same. But one of them was content in his circumstances. One of them embraced where he was at, and he, and he found the joy in it. And one of them did what the rest of us do and, and got discontent very, very quickly. Contentment is the key. I brought a picture of my son, uh, if you go ahead and put that up for him. This is uh, actually the day after our daughter was born. Uh, our daughter was born, and my little brother Nick came up to visit us, and he bought Judah a, a dinosaur play set. So there's all these dinosaurs in this kit that my brother bought. And if you know my brother, that was a big deal for him to get something from my, from my son. I thought that was super cool. Uh, and so Kim Steed, who was watching Judah while we were at the hospital, she takes this picture of him. She says, Nick got Judah this dinosaur play set, and all he wants to do is hold on to the box. Uh, and, and so she said, we can't even leave the house. He made me bring the box in his car seat so that we could go somewhere. So he was so attached to this box. And so I hear that, and I'm like, oh. And you guys all, if you've had kids or been around kids, you know, right? Like, kids are all about the box. You spend so much money on something, and they, they celebrate the thing that costs three cents. And so my immediate reaction is, oh, I got to go home and show him to play with the dinosaurs and not to worry about the box. And, and we push back against that. But, but think about this. How awesome is it that my son is content with the box? How cool is it that that child, see, that's natural. We beat that out of them. We train them that they've got to have the expensive thing. We train them that they've got to have the part that, that costs so much. The contentment is actually inbred in them. And so let's help them to discover that what's already inside them. Let's help them to tap in to that God-given contentment that he's placed in them. Contentment is, is really just your way of viewing things. I'm not sure how we can completely teach contentment, but, uh, but I do think there are some principles that will help us to teach our kids to be content. I want to give you these three things. I'll give them to you, A, B, and C, uh, and then we will be wrapping up shortly after that. So the first thing about content people is content people are grateful people. 
If you want to help your kids to have a, an attitude of contentment, you got to teach them to be grateful. When I was about four years old, uh, it, it was the day before Easter, and the, the local little shopping mall was doing a thing where if you came and you stood in line, you could see the Easter bunny, and then you get an Easter egg with some chocolate inside of it or whatever, right? So, so we went, and we stood in line for like 45 minutes. My mom took me. And uh, before we got to the front of the line, and she had told me this a few times through the line, make sure when you get your egg, say thank you. Make sure and say thank you. Make sure and say thank you. My mom just beat that into us. We were the kids that grandma and grandpa sent us something. We had to write a thank you letter, right? Like that's just how my mom was. And I'm grateful that my mom was that way. So I get to the front of the line, sit in line for 45 minutes. I get this egg, totally not worth standing in line for 45 minutes for, by the way. Uh, and, And I do what I've taught to do. I say thank you. And the lady who was standing next to the Easter bunny, the one who actually gave us the egg, she looks at my mom and she says, I've been out here all day. That's the first kid who said thank you. This is 30 years ago. Things have not gotten better. And I don't say that to be like, look how awesome my mom is or look how awesome I am because I'm the kid that said thank you. What I'm saying is we've got a, a lack of gratitude in our culture. We do not do this well. Man, people give us something for free and we get entitled to it really quickly and we stand in line and then we complain that we were in line for so long and somebody else got this in their egg and I only got this in my egg and, and we miss out on the blessing of gratitude. So, man, teach your kids to be grateful. Beat it into them like my parents did to me. It was annoying, and I hated it, but I'm so grateful that they did, that they made us show gratitude. Anytime somebody did something for us, we were going to be grateful. Such an important part uh, of contentment. The second way to help your kids learn contentment is I believe that content people are humble people. Content people are humble people. Talked a little bit about how in in so many ways the Life revolves around kids. We make kids the the center of the universe. And again, I'm not telling you not to love your kid. I'm not telling you not to bless your kid. I'm not telling you not to be there for your kid. But but I think when when every time a family goes out to eat, it revolves around what the kid will eat. And every time the family goes on vacation, it revolves around what the kid wants to do on vacation. And and every time the the family makes summer plans, it revolves around the kid's soccer or the kid's baseball. We're sending them the message that life is all about you. And it's a rude awakening when they get out in the real world and they find out life is not all about you. And they get that teacher and they say, man, teacher doesn't think life's about me. Or coach doesn't think life's about me. It's a rude awakening. Yes, bless your kids. Yes, love on your kids. But teach them humility. It ain't all about you. It's okay for you not to love everything that happens. It's okay for you not to love every meal that's served. It's okay for you not to love every trip that we go on. Because life isn't just about you. The third thing that I would say is first content people are grateful people, second content people are humble people, and third content people are generous people. Uh, And to to share and illustrate this point for you, I actually brought a clip of Dave Ramsey and his daughter Rachel Cruz teaching at a church in in Oklahoma City called Life Church. Uh, And they were teaching on this same topic that they taught on when I saw them at Catalyst. And and Dave's going to talk a little bit about generosity, and then Rachel's going to kind of wrap things up. So check this out. And if you want to create generosity... Oh, let me tell you what generosity does. What Rachel was talking about, it creates, it's the antidote for selfishness. Your child, when they learn to give and they learn to put others first, it shifts the selfishness bug out of them. All of this mixes together with humility and gratitude to create contentment. Generosity is a big part of that. When Rachel was a little kid, she was the one that was the most full of herself Dobson wrote a book about her, The Strong-Willed Child. 
She was the one at four years old who would put her hands on her hips and look at you and just defy you. If she wasn't so cute, we probably would have just taken her out, you know? <laughs> it was amazing. And she was in kindergarten, and her kindergarten teacher gave the little kindergartners an assignment. She said, I want you folks in kindergarten here, our five-year-old kindergartners, to draw a picture and write down what you would do if you had $100. Now, if you haven't had a kindergartner in a while, $100 is somewhere around $10 million. <laughs> She brought this home, and the little homework papers and her older sister's homework papers are there. We're sitting in the floor in front of the couch, thumbing through them, and we picked this thing up, started reading through it, and we were laughing at these kids. Scott H. says, if I had $100, I'd want a car that changes into everything. <laughs> and okay, Allison says, if I had $100, I'd buy a little dollhouse. You're right. It'd be little. <laughs> Andrew L. says, if I had $100, I'd buy a swimming pool with a diving board, a football, a gun, and a bomb. <laughs> Put this kid on the terrorist watch list. <laughs> Anna Catherine says, if I had $100, I'd buy a house with a cat. You could get the cat. <laughs> and we got to Rachel's, and we figured our little character was going to be the funniest of all the characters, because... That was pretty much God setting us up. We flipped to hers, and it caught us off guard, and we both looked up at each other, and we were both crying. As Rachel said, if I had $100, I'd give it to the poor people. Amen. Teach your children contentment. Teach them generosity as an element of contentment. Teach them that God owns it all. Teach them the value of work. And that contentment is the antidote. I, yeah, you <laughs> I was going to say I have a confession to make that I do not remember doing this. <laughs> but I can tell you probably what was going through my mind even at, yes, five years old. You have to realize parents, through most of parenting, but specifically with this money stuff, that more is caught than taught. Your kids are watching you. And I can remember sitting in my sister's hand-me-down dress, sitting in the pew in the church we grew up in, in a red velvet offering bag with two wooden handles on each side that would get passed down our aisle, passed down the pew every Sunday. And I remember watching my dad, without fail, every Sunday, drop a folded check in that bag. And I'd, drop him, drop a, I'd see him drop a check in. And it wasn't this like lights flashing, hey kids, mom and dad are giving this week. I just saw it. That is how they lived out their lives. So parents, more is caught than taught. And as you're teaching your kids all of what we've talked about, this doesn't happen in just one big, you know, money conversation or one weekend long money summit that you think you're going to have with your kids. This happens in everyday teachable moments in the ebb and flow of life. And I believe handing them a little bit more of responsibility the older they get so they feel the weight of their own money decisions. It kind of reminds me of the way mom and dad parented growing up. There's kind of two extremes of parenting sometimes. There's one side that says, you know, well, let's just live in this little bubble. I don't want you to see the outside world. I don't want you to make any decision with your life because I don't want you to feel pain or harm. So we're going to just stay right here. And some of those kids are the ones that graduate high school and go off to college and go crazy that they do that because they were never allowed to make any decision with their life. So when something came up, they made the wrong decision because their decision-making muscle was never built. But then you have the parents over here that say, you know, fly, little eight-year-old, 
fly and be free. Just run around the restaurant screaming and banging your silverware. It's fine, don't worry, you know. You're like, oh my gosh, please parents, please, please discipline, right? So it's the, the two extremes, and mom and dad tried to find the middle ground. And they did this in one way through an analogy of a rope. So the idea of the rope was that we were tied to one end of the rope, and they had the other end. And depending upon how well we made decisions, how trustworthy we were, they would essentially let the rope out, and we'd have more and more freedom. But if we made a bad decision, they would pull the rope back in. I remember being in the eighth grade with some of my girlfriends, and we went to the movies. My mom dropped us off, and we decided not to see the movie, so we went across the street and got ice cream. She came back two hours later, couldn't find us. It was like this whole ordeal. We had a family meeting about it that night. And I remember dad saying, Rachel, if you had called us on the payphone, because there weren't cell phones back then, right? If you had called us on the payphone, we probably would have let you go get ice cream, but you didn't. And you weren't where you said you were going to be. So now we can't trust you next time we drop you off. So we're going to have to pull the rope back in. But fast forward a few years, I was 15 years old at a high school party and some adult beverages were being passed around. And I called my mom to have her come pick me up. And, and I got in the car and she looked at me and she said, lots of rope, Rachel. You get lots of rope. Good decision. Good choice. <laughs> so when my older sister Denise is graduating from high school and going to college, she was the first one to leave home. And if you've had your first one leave, it's a big deal, right? A big deal. So mom made this huge meal. We sat in the dining room table. You know, we ate on the fancy plates that you only eat on, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas. We had cloth napkins. It was just this very nice dinner for Denise. And we all went around the table, and, and we were telling stories and laughing and crying. It was like she was dying or something, but she wasn't. <laughs> just moving two and a half hours away. But towards the end of that dinner, Dad brought out a gift bag, and he pulled this out of it. A rope. And he said to Denise, you know, gave her kind of the sweet dad going away to college speech and told her how proud he was of her and, and how, you know, him and my mom, they're not worried about her going off to college because they've been handing her a little bit of rope at a time. And now what's left of that rope doesn't reach from Nashville, Tennessee to Knoxville, Tennessee. And so now her everyday decisions are now up to her. She has the rope. And he tied different ribbons around it, symbolizing different areas of her life. So white was her purity. Purple was her spiritual walk. Orange was because she was going to the University of Tennessee. Go Vols. Red was her academics. And yellow was if she ever needed to come home. And he said, Denise, this is your passage into adulthood. And he handed her the rope. And we all just cried. We're like, Denise has the rope and she's never coming home again. <laughs> Everything's changing. Now, I'm the middle child of the Ramsey family, so the neglected and abused child, of course. <laughs> so the night before I went to college, we had pizza. <laughs> on paper plates, with paper napkins. And I was going to bed and dad was like, oh, Rachel, you need a rope, don't you? <laughs> Went to the garage and handed me this. Yeah. 
I'll let you decide which child is their favorites, but I think we all know. But I look at this rope and I see this as really my legacy. I see this as a legacy of life. I had parents who were not perfect, but were intentional with us. And I believe they've passed this on a legacy of life. Good to know. So Deuteronomy 30:19 says, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. And what I love about this and I love about Dave and Rachel and their testimony and the way that God has used them to, to impact so many other families, including my own, is I love that God says, hey, you've got two choices. You can choose life. You can choose death. You can choose blessing. You can choose cursing. But he doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just cut us off and say, hey, you've got the rope. Go figure it out for yourself. He actually gives us the answer. He says, now choose life so that you can live, so that your kids can live. Uh, I want to see us choose life when it comes to our finances. I, I want to see God's people free. I want to see the next time. We're, we're going to Los Angeles next month. And others, people that aren't going to Los Angeles who really wanted to, who felt like, you know what, I, I can't do it because of the finances. I want to see the next time we put a mission trip together that God's people are free to follow God's call. That, that when God places that on our heart, that we've got the freedom to pursue the things that God places on our heart. I want us to choose life. And that means we have to make some tough decisions. That means we have to maybe change some habits. And maybe that needs to change the way we approach our finances. But I absolutely believe it can happen. My wife and I are living proof. We have not mastered it. We are not perfect when it comes to money. But we have come so far in six years. Uh, and, and now we, we've got kids and we're sitting down and trying to figure out how can we pass this stuff Onto them. That's why I didn't try to put together a message for you on this today because I'm still figuring this stuff out. But I know that Dave and Rachel, they, they have completely seen this work in their family. Let's choose life. Let's attack debt. Let's teach our kids that God owns it all. Let's teach them the value of work. Let's teach them that contentment is the antidote because I want to see our kids free. I want to see us free. I want to see our families free. I want to see God's people free. God did not create us to be in chains. He created us to be free. And when, when we find that freedom, man, there's so much joy in it. I promise you that.